Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storr. It's Tuesday, April 6, 2021, which means we will not be protected by Hanum, the angel of Monday. Today's show is Pin Dancing with the angelic essayist Elliot Weinberger. Our music comes from Wilco's 2004 release, A Ghost is Born, and our opening song is Theologians. Angels. What do we really know about them? Where do they come from? What are they made of? How do they communicate and perceive? Today's guest, Elliot Weinberger, has mined and deconstructed, resurrected, and distilled centuries of theology into his new book, Angels and Saints. Because when you're trying to find out about angels, it's hard to avoid the topic of saints. In his book, Weinberger offers saints' lives retold in a series of vibrant and playful capsule biographies. And we'll hear one of these read by Weinberger, that of Columba of Ireland, who died in the year 597. And our guide to the divine and earthly orders takes things one step further, a speculation on the afterlife. Angels and Saints is published by Christine Bergen and New Directions. We'll begin with politics, as Weinberger has just won the Bremerhaven Citizens Prize for Literature, given biannually to writers who set an example against injustice and violence, against hatred and intolerance. In 2004, in the London Review of Books, Weinberger published his now-famous essay, What I Heard About Iraq, a montage of facts, soundbites, and testimonies that were spouted out of the mouths of the agents and cheerleaders of war. This piece launched a career he's better known for in Europe and Latin America than in the U.S., that of a commentator highly critical of U.S. politics and foreign policy. We'll hear a selection from a more recent piece, Advice to Washington from Ancient China, also published in the London Review of Books from February of 2018. And we'll close the show with a backwards glance at the child who is father to the artist and essayist and author of many collections, including The Ghosts of Birds, An Elemental Thing, Oranges and Peanuts for Sale, and works on paper, to name only a handful, all of which are published by New Directions. And now, Pin Dancing, with Elliot Weinberger, on Interchange, on WFHB. You joined us last to discuss uh, your book, The Ghosts of Birds, from New Directions. Um, but before we go into your new book, uh, I want to congratulate you on winning the Bremerhaven Citizens Prize for Literature. I think it's also called the Bremerhaven Jeanette Schocken Prize, a prize given annually to writers who set an example against injustice and violence, against hatred and intolerance. I have to confess, I know nothing about that prize. How did how did that come to be yours? It's actually a very sweet prize because Bremerhaven is the, the biggest port in Germany. 
I think one of the biggest ports in the world. And the, the citizens of Bremerhaven have decided to, um, get together to honor an international rider every two years and they chip in the money for it. Hmm. And so it doesn't come from the, uh, uh, from a foundation or, or from the government particularly. So it's the, it's the citizens award for, for literature, which is quite unusual. I mean, you can imagine, say, uh, the city of Galveston deciding to uh, to all chip in to honor an international writer. Hmm. I'd like to imagine it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we wish <laughs> in a parallel universe. So that's, that's quite nice. And so it, it came as a complete surprise to me. It's actually the first prize I've won uh, since fourth grade uh, <laughs> when I was voted most improved athlete. I, I have sort of a, a parallel existence in, in, in Germany as, as a political writer. And so it's mainly given, I think, for my political writing. They put together a collection of all the uh, things I'd written about the Bush and Trump administrations last summer. And it, it was actually a bestseller all summer. It's the first time I've ever had a bestseller. Wow. So I, I have a I have a kind of unusual existence in Germany. The award is named after a woman who was uh, killed in an ex- uh, Nazi extermination camp, right? Right, right. And also, um, it commemorates a Nazi uh, book burning that happened in, in Bremerhaven also. Now, obviously, you do a lot of political writing that I, I read in the, the London Review of Books. You kind of began that with the Bush administration, right? That began with your famous, now famous, um, what I heard about Iraq, 2004? Uh, it's hard to remember at this point. <laughs> yeah, about around then. And that that kind of uh, catapulted you into into political writing, right? Yeah, I had written before, but mainly uh, all my political things are, are are published abroad, where it's much more normal. In fact, it's routine to have literary writers writing on on social or, or political issues. Mm-hmm. You know, in the United States, the people who are on the op-ed pages tend to be you know journalists funded think tank people. Right. Whereas as soon as you get outside of the United States, then it's completely normal to have literary writers, not only on the op-ed pages, but on television and radio. In the U.S., I think you pretty much have to be a sort of a, a one-issue person. If you're an African-American novelist, you might be asked about race, but uh, you're not going to be asked about it, about anything else. It's obviously an industry here talking about politics directed, I assume, by politicians and and the wealthy themselves as in terms of who gets to say what, how, when, and where. And that's an industry in itself, as much a PR industry as anything else. And uh, so across the globe, you're, you're saying that generally anyone who people have respect for in their intelligence, uh, in as displayed in their work, maybe primarily literary, I'm not sure, but uh, is asked to opine on things. Yeah, I mean, we, the United States doesn't really have literary public intellectuals. It had in the past, but at least not in the last 40 years or so. Who would you say so, was our last one? I, I suppose Susan Sontag mm-hmm. was when it was probably the last one to, uh, to have some sort of, some sort of crossover. Someone like Sontag, unlike many of the, uh, best known literary writers of the world, um, Sontag never had a, a, a weekly column in his paper. In, in true, uh, I guess, Weinberger style, I like, uh, from, from that, this last four years, uh, the, uh, the piece from February 2018, Advice to Washington from Ancient China. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. <laughs> yes. Well, that's from the, uh, that's from this, uh, wonderful, uh, encyclopedia called the, the Huainanta, which was basically written, um, I think in the second century, right? They got all the scholars together to write 
everything that the emperor needs to know to properly rule a country. And so it had lots of, uh, not only has cosmological information and a lot of practical information, but also a lot of political information and what a wise ruler does. So I was just quoting from that as yeah. particularly ironic, uh, you know, in the, in the Trump administration to, to hear some ancient Chinese wisdom on, on, on what a wise, what a wise ruler is supposed to be doing. Yeah, makes perfectly clear that we did not have a wise ruler. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> I think that's the uh, the understatement. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad <laughs> to have made it. <laughs> a selection from Elliot Weinberger's essay, Advice to Washington from Ancient China. If a ruler rejects those who work for the public good and employs people according to friendship and factions, then those of bizarre talent and frivolous ability will be promoted out of turn, while conscientious officials will be hindered and will not advance. In this way, the customs of the people will fall into disorder throughout the state and accomplished officials will struggle. If the ruler ignores what he should preserve and struggles with his ministers and subordinates about the conduct of affairs, then those with official posts will be preoccupied with holding on to their positions, and those charged with official duties will avoid dismissal by following the whims of the ruler. This will cause capable ministers to conceal their wisdom. If the ruler is frequently exhausted by attending to lesser duties, proper conduct will deteriorate throughout the state. His knowledge by itself will be insufficient to govern, and he will lack what it takes to deal with the world. When the people do not even have hollowed-out caves or wattle huts in which to shelter themselves, an enlightened ruler does not enjoy high terraces and multi-storied pavilions, linked chambers, and lavish rooms. What is prohibited to the people must not be practiced by the ruler himself. If a ruler uses depravity to manipulate society, he will certainly fail. In an era of decline, those above love to seize power and know no limits. Officials decrease rewards and increase punishments. The people struggle angrily, and affairs exhaust their energy without achieving anything. When the ruler is sincere and upright, honest officials will carry out their duties, and wicked men will go into hiding. When the ruler is not upright, evil men will achieve their goal, and loyal ones will hide themselves. Uh, so the new book is Angels and Saints. It's a New Directions book as well, but it's also co-published, right? Yeah, it's co-published with uh, Christine Bergen, who does very, very beautiful books. The Emily Dickinson uh, envelope poems, some of the Robert Walser books, also with New Directions, and uh, Hildas Klimt's notebooks and things. So she, someone who previously had a gallery and uh, now is devoted to just doing beautiful books of mainly literary, some art things. So I was very lucky. And I had been writing this book on angels and saints um, because when I'm writing the political things, I have to spend an inordinate amount of time on the minutia of the news. So to keep myself from going crazy, uh, I like to have another project that's more timeless, that's, you know, news that stays news. This is what I was working on through the Trump administration. And so when, when uh, Christine approached me about doing something, she, of course, wanted some artwork with it. Curiously, one of the best ways to, to research artwork these days is Instagram, because out there on Instagram, once you get past everyone and their fabulous lifestyles, Instagram is full of these people who 
consider themselves internet curators so that, for example, most of the uh, major libraries and museums of the world have digitalized vast amounts of holdings. And then there are these people out there that go through these things that have Instagram sites where they present things. So, for example, if you're researching a medieval manuscript, there are quite a few uh, Instagram sites just devoted to that. Then you find something that you like, and they give you the uh, information. It comes from the Bibliothèque Nationale or Oxford or wherever. Then you follow up on that, go through all of the illustrations for that particular manuscript and so forth. So it, it's a wonderful uh, unusual resource. Through that, I came across these fabulous uh, grid um, paintings that were illustrating the work of this monk, uh, Rabanus Maurus. They're grids of letters that spell out words of religious poems that he's written. Then uh, then as I was researching it, I found an article which is about a review of a uh, British Museum show of manuscripts, and there were some paragraphs in the review that were about these Rabanus Maurus manuscripts. And it turned out to be written by somebody that I knew, Mary Wellesley, who's a medievalist. So uh, I asked her if she would kind of write an explication of what's going on, because they're incredibly complicated. In terms of the book itself, would you say this was, at this point, a kind of standard uh, approach that you take in your work, uh, how you how you go about doing it? Yeah, well, the subject matter is not so normal for me. And then the uh, the book is in two halves. The first half is a, is a long essay on angels probably the longest essay I've ever written, much more discursive. And then the second half are biographies of saints, um, many of which are only a sentence long, most most of which are about a page long. And um, about 25 years ago, I had written a little, uh, a one-paragraph essay about angels, and I thought I would expand this. I started researching it, and then once, of course, you get into the angels, it becomes absolutely endless. First of all, what, what I hadn't realized is that most of what we know about angels was invented after the Bible. They don't actually appear all that much in the Bible, and almost nothing is said about them, what they're like, and so forth. And all of this comes much later on. And what's curious about it is that unlike any other major religion, a great deal of time, I mean centuries of time and thought, was put into speculation about the material reality of these beings, whether you want to consider them imaginary or not. So, for example, I mean, you know, Hindus don't worry about how did Krishna get to be blue, um, whereas the Catholic Church was deeply preoccupied with all of the questions, like can angels speak to each other? How many angels are there? Do they have sensory or organs? Can they actually hear and smell? Do they think on their own or they just repeat God? The great book for this is Thomas Aquinas has a 3,000-page book called the Summa Theologica, where he deals with all of these questions and he presents in great detail the pros and cons and then comes to his own conclusion. So it's one of the most amazing books ever, actually. <laughs> so I became fascinated by this, fell down into that labyrinth. And then in researching angels, of course, you, you uh, end up hearing a lot about the saints because the saints are always interacting. Then I got hung up on the lives of the saints, of which literally 10,000. So I went through them all. But the, um, <laughs> uh, the thing about the saints is that the, the, the church actually didn't canonize all that many people until the 20th century. And then at the beginning of the 20th century, they started canonizing endless people. When the devil came, he was not red. 
He was cruel, and he said, "Come with me." It's time for a break. This is "Hell Is Chrome," another track from Wilco's "A Ghost Is Born." More with Elliot Weinberger on his new book, Angels and Saints, when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Pin Dancing with essayist and translator Elliot Weinberger, whose new book is Angels and Saints, published by Christine Bergen and New Directions. We begin, as the book does, with angels, but these beings seem out of the realm of understanding, whereas those fallen angels or devils make perfect sense. Let's talk a little bit about angels uh, before we go into saints. We'll just stick with the, the way the book is laid out. Um, there's angels, saints, and then the afterlife, which someone has called a punchline to the book, which makes sense to me. Maybe we'll avoid it. The angels, though, as you say, are endlessly fascinating, and the fact that they're speculated on as if they were logical, uh, as if you could <laughs> approach it logically, and applying sort of human ideas to the inhuman uh, or unhuman or something, you know, to the divine or the mostly divine, just struck me as I was reading. And obviously, it was very, very funny at times. And as much funny for the you know deadpan way that you detail it all and the way you say, it's debatable that. <laughs> it's just, you know, it just makes me laugh. I mean, I smiled while I was reading it. So, you know, when you when you look at these things and these debates, um, it struck me more, I think, that when you move to the idea of the fallen angels, uh, which became, became de- demons or devils in in Christian uh, thinking, it begins to make sense, right? They begin to see angels in that form as people uh, as much as anything else. So, their their attributes were more like other people or like people who were really smart. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, there's this tradition that the demons are incredibly intelligent, but the the angels are kind of dumb. 
<laughs> so, and then the the fallen angels is is very confusing because most of the it doesn't really happen that much in the Bible. I mean, it's in the book of Revelation. Uh, but the book of Revelation is about things that are going to happen in the future. And then uh, Jesus alludes to it once, sort of vaguely. So most of the whole mythology about the fall of the angels uh, happens after the Bible. And in fact, the uh, Lucifer comes from... Uh, comes from one of the Psalms, which is about the, the king of Babylon having fallen and uh, comparing it to the um, to Lucifer, which is Venus, the evening and morning star. There is, of course, this incredible tradition where Christians take things of the Old Testament, often passages completely out of context, and uh, assume that they are actually about uh, events that are in the New Testament. So this is kind of what happened with Lucifer. And then you have the question of purgatory, which gets invented, I think, around the 12th or 13th century. That also is not in the Bible. So it's it's interesting uh, uh, to realize how much of sort of the mythology of Christianity really evolves after the Bible and is not in the Bible at all. You are listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Pin Dancing on Angels and Saints with essayist and translator Elliot Weinberger. And we're taking a brief tour through the extraordinarily creative thinking concerning angels, asking, do they have sex? Do they eat? And if so, do they then have to use the bathroom? Are they inventions or discoveries? And who really thinks they know the truth? Hint, the sainted Aquinas. As you say, or as you detail throughout, right, uh, as you note, a lot of this comes through Aquinas uh, in particular. And I wonder, as I was reading and as you were actually talking about um, this this idea that, you know, other religions don't question or concern themselves with these things, I think somewhere else you, you note that Calvin says something similar, right? It's perverse to concern yourself with the origins of angels. Two things. One is that um, there's, a, there's a big debate about when angels are created because they're not created in the creation, in the seven days of the creation or six days of the creation. They're not mentioned as having been created. So then there's a the question of were they created before the creation or... Um, Augustine said that they're a part of uh, light, as in let there be light. So that that's what Calvin is specifically referring to there. But then the Protestants have a big problem with angels because uh, they are in the Bible, so they do exist. But they were too much associated with the Catholic Church. And, of course, Protestants did not like all of that, you know, what they called popery around angels. Protestants believe, well, our focus should just be on God. So, yeah. uh, um, and they, and then of course they have the invention of the, of the guardian angel, so that you have a kind of personal relationship with this transcendent being. On the topic of guardian angels, from Elliot Weinberger's essay, Angels. According to Aquinas, all corporeal things are governed by angels. According to Basil of Caesarea, in the 4th century, they guard the soul like an army. According to the Talmud, this includes an angel for each blade of grass, encouraging it to grow. According to Blasco Lanuza, 
The guardian angels have 12 tasks to teach us, to mediate between us and God, to prevent dangers, to fight against the devil, to reprimand us, to console us, to guide us, to reduce our temptations, to defend us, to help us out of our predicaments, to exhort us to virtue, and to lovingly punish us. Christopher Smart in the 18th century put it more simply, my angel is always ready at a pinch to help me out and to keep me up. Some, however, have wondered why God, who neither slumbers nor sleeps as he watches over all of us, would need the assistance of the guardian angels. Protestants have very mixed things about that. Martin Luther goes back and forth on this on this question of, of, of angels and, and Calvin and, and then uh, you know Cotton Mather and the and the American Puritans also they deny that they exist, but on the other hand they also have visions where they see angels. So it gets it gets it gets problematic. On some level, I wonder if it's a, a function of doubt in, in general. Like it's such a creative process to try to humanize the divine in a lot of ways, right? It just seems to me like an extreme, a symptom of doubting that you, you begin to just talk about this thing that you can't, you can't actually say anything about other than ev- everything you make up. I mean, none of it has, I mean, it has no basis other than, the, like you say, there's, they're mentioned, but there's, and there's nothing other than doing some particular work doing the things that angels do, right? being messengers, um, you know, being uh, an army, you know, these things are pretty basic, but and but they almost then seem uh, like primal forces, too. It struck me again as I was reading it that angels are like quantum physics. You know, they're not here or not there when you look at them, <laughs> you know, they're, or they're both wave and particle. It's just kind of fascinating, the, the scholarship, quote-unquote, that came out of this thing that has no there. Right. But it's also kind of awe-inspiring, too, because it's just, I mean, it's just, you know, one more manifestation of, of, of the human imagination, you know, that people have been cre- have been able to create this universe of angels. And then I also get into the whole uh, hierarchy of angels, which is also, which is also this invention and the, and the, uh, we always have to say invention slash description. <laughs> Because you know, uh, which was invented or first described, uh, you know, sometime in the fifth century, and uh, the different categories of angels, the seraphim and cherubim are, are are in the Bible, but are quite different. But then you have all these other ones, the thrones and dominions and so forth, which were invented in, or described in the fifth century. So that there's all these different, there's a whole hierarchy. In fact, the person who did it. Um, who is called Pseudo Dionysius invented the word hierarchy, and so it creates this this whole world of uh, of angels and, a, and a, almost a kind of bureaucracy of angels, and uh, each one is assigned different kinds of duties, and they're higher and lower in the ranks of power, shall we say? So all of that gets, is is completely fascinating. It's the way the world works. It has to have something operating behind it. It needs a bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, which, of course, was mimetic of the church bureaucracy. You must have favorites of these kinds of things, like when you discover these particular things. But, you know, as one reads through, um, you know, you get to a, a thing like a, that's on page 21, which uh, has the saint, uh, was it Mechthilda? She says something like the simplicity of angels, or you say, the simplicity of angels could be vexing. Um, where the saint, I think she's a 13th century saint, but I don't remember. Um 
basically believes that sh- humans could catch up to angels. Like she, she thinks humans could be uh, as as divine as angels. And she wrote that she could take Jesus, quote, in my arms, eat him and drink him and have my way with him. This can never happen to the angels. And what then do I care what the angels experience? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, of course, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of erotic scenes, uh, particularly among the nuns uh, uh, with the angels. And then, of course, there was this uh, this question of do angels have sex? And and uh, in and Milton in Paradise Lost claims that they do. And not only that, but they're gender fluid. They uh, they kind of change from one gender to another. But other than Milton, I don't in the in the Catholic Church, there's not too much talk about about angels having sex. There's a lot of debate about whether angels eat because if they're incorporeal. There, are, there is a scene uh, in, in, the, in the Old Testament where um, the angels visit uh, Abraham and Abraham feeds them. And uh, so then there's a question about, you know, do angels, if they're incorporeal beings, do they actually eat? Uh, or are they pretending to eat? And if they're pretending to eat, that's a deception. And obviously, an angel would not deceive. Milton claims not only did they eat, but they have digestive systems. Luckily, he doesn't go into detail about how that works. Yeah, I was going to say, so they also go, you know, they use the toilet. Sometimes they have to use the toilet. The Milton part is interesting, obviously, again, because as you say, he's kind of written his whole book, uh, Paradise Lost, based on two or three lines in Revelation, uh, which is fascinating in itself. But the gender fluid thing is interesting also, because I think the debate initially is about do angels, how do the angels multiply? You know, do they reproduce themselves? And, you know, sex being essential for us to reproduce ourselves. And, and when we move into gender fluidity, then uh, the reproduction aspect, I suppose, is no longer an issue. It's about enjoying pure being, perhaps. Yeah, well, it's also a question of, of uh, are there more angels? So if you have a finite number of angels, of course, the number of angels gets into the millions. And so uh, then there's a question of are more angels created? Uh, and then in, in uh, Judaism, there's a tradition that more angels are created with, with every breath of God. Uh, but in Christianity, there's pretty much a... a uh, a finite number of, of angels. Seriously, I mean, I think there's a lot of folkloric beliefs that uh, particularly good people, when they die, become angels. There seems to be a, a, a kind of a, a fixed, fixed number of the angels, but what that number is is highly debatable. Right. Well, you know it also, too, that uh, there's this idea of angels uh, procreating with uh, you know, mortal women also, kind of a Greek god idea. Yeah, well, that gets complicated. Basically, everything about angels is complicated. In the Old Testament, uh, there are these these angels that procreate with the with human women. Uh, so then, there's a question about well, who are these people exactly? Are they the fallen angels? Is it something else? And it's because of that kind of layering. The Old Testament is full of layers from from Mesopotamian mythologies. And so there's a lot of that get carried over. Well, I liked in particular the um, the thinking of was it Blasco Lanuza who wrote about the insightfulness of the demons, um, um, but also uh, about guardian angels as well. But I couldn't find anything about him. I think there was one two volume history of Aragon, ecclesiastical and secular, written to displace a Castilian history. Apparently, so I guess you know that came out of that book, perhaps. But it, it just seemed like the most really um, insightful. Angel thinking. Blasco Lanusa gets into these categories of temptation and all the different kinds of 
temptation that there are, and how the demons uh, manage to uh, pervert an ordinary human through uh, such things as continuous importuning, creating doubts, intimidation through like harm. Yeah, he seemed very much a, a psychoanalyst. Yeah, absolutely. And this was a while ago. I forget. This is uh, History of Aragon, 1616 and 1619, that book in particular. Yeah. yeah so, 17, early 17th century. Well before Freud. Yes, definitely. <laughs> but it sounded like Freud, right? I mean, it sounded like a, a work of the, the unconscious or the, way that, the ways in which humans interact with each other. It's time for another break and another song from Wilco's A Ghost is Born. This is Muzzle of Bees. The day after St. Rita of Kasha's baptism, bees were seen swarming around her crib, climbing in and out of her open mouth. She was unharmed. More with Elliot Weinberger on Saints when Interchange returns on WFHB. back to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is essayist and translator Elliot Weinberger, whose new book is Angels and Saints, about angels and saints. What did you expect? In this segment, we highlight guardian angels, not in the Bible, by the way. But the lore of angels are an example of awe-inspiring human invention, or is it description? And how much of this has to do with Mesopotamia? A lot of the saints uh, are examples of psychological problems, it seems like. Oh, you mean they themselves? Yes, yes, problems. yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there's this, you know, there's, there's a thin line between uh, madness and divine madness. A lot of the, the cloistered people, uh, particularly the cloistered women, feminism has written a lot of books on this subject, you know, holy anorexia and so forth, eating disorders and the self-mutilations of and uh, and then of course there's the whole sort of uh, you know marriage with with Jesus that the nuns uh, undergo with various levels of uh, shall we say erotic rapture. Not having spent any time on saints in my in my life myself, uh, reading about the you know a ring made of, out of Jesus's foreskin was a little it took me back a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's Catherine of Siena, who also had very long conversations with God, which were all recorded. God really uh, spends a lot of his time complaining. 
It sounds more like a Jewish God than a Christian <laughs> God, if you ask me. I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> Occasionally throughout the book, there are uh, things written in italics, right? So that the section on Mechthilda um, is in italics, or the one in the saints is in italics. And uh, I think um, Angela Folino uh, is also in italics. What do the italics mean? Is it a direct source or... Oh, the, the italic sections are, are because they're basically adapted uh, from things that were written by those saints. So they're actually the word of the saints, more or less, yeah. The uh, Angela uh, section was kind of scary. Um, I mean, sim- in a simple way, right? She uh, she basically prays for the end of all the males, male people in her life who all end up dying. Yeah, Angela Foligno, she was a, a, a very holy person who was misunderstood by, by her, by her husband and her sons who, who she thought were sort of violent and corrupt and uh, mistreated her and and so she actually she prayed for their death and was quite relieved when they died and that she could then enter the monastery not so unusual for an abused woman but it is a little shocking to read it in this in this kind of religious context yeah yeah so so i think that to me is what what i found as interesting as anything else was the way in which i would read this now right i would read this as an abused woman who killed the men in her family and then went to live in a convent Right. Well, she didn't kill them, but she uh, she hoped for their death. I do not doubt that she was abused, but the uh, I prayed and they all died was, uh, I mean, good for her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the guy, God hasn't shown too many feminist qualities over the centuries, but I guess this was an example. I did like the one on uh, the dog saint. It made me sad. Yeah, uh, for some reason, everybody likes the dog there. Um, well, why wouldn't they? Yeah, this is a dog. Well, the curious thing about that is uh, this is the uh, Saint Guinefort, who uh, in the 13th century, who's actually a dog. And um, it's a classic story that actually comes from India originally, which is from the Panchatantra. This couple... Uh, leave their infant child in the care of their dog, and then when they come back, they find uh, the everything, the crib has been overturned, there's blood all over the place, and they assume that the dog has killed the baby. But in fact, the dog has killed a snake that was going to attack the baby. They killed the dog thinking that the dog killed their baby. But in fact, the dog has protected the baby by killing a snake. Um, and then they built the shrine to the dog. He's never officially canonized by the church. And uh, somebody pointed out to me, which I'd forgotten, that this is also a scene in the in the Disney movie Lady and the Tramp. What's wrong, Pitch? A rat. Where? Upstairs, in the baby's room. How do I get in? The little door on the porch.
impossible heavens. Oh, oh you poor little darling. No, 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 no. Thank goodness you're not hurt, you. You vicious brute. Get back. Go, go, go on. Get back. The pound. The pound, that's it. I'll call the pound. So these stories just go on forever, you know, from India to uh, to Walt Disney. Right. So these these are stories, and I think one of the things that you know, when you read these things, it's one of, especially if you're not in involved in this upbringing, perhaps uh, you obviously you know shake your head or you know think, wow, this is crazy, and of course none of this really happened, and all all that kind of thing. But you have to imagine them that these are stories, and you noted this already before that the incredible uh, imagination of of people through time and their different places where they have very different lives than we have now, obviously, but uh, who are imagining these stories, telling these stories, sharing these stories. I think one of the uh, the book review um, in the, the London Review of Books, uh, Marina Warner, just points out the, the sort of calendar uh, nature of a lot of these saints, uh, saints' days, the book of hours and things like that. So there are reasons for these stories beyond trying to imagine these things as holy necessarily. You know, all of the wealth and wisdom are full of these stories. Uh, I wrote a little biography of Mohammed some years ago, which is also full of marvelous stories, not in the Quran, but folkloric stories around different moments in the in the life of Mohammed, which were also that kind of thing. You know, a palm tree bends down to uh, pay homage to, to Mohammed. So these kinds of stories are universal, and they inspire a sense of wonder uh, among the believers. Well, uh, you, I assume, can uh, determine that I'm not one of those. Right. <laughs> Elliot Weinberger reads his brief life of Columba of Ireland, who died in the year 597. He saw a young monk reading a book by a river, and he told the young monk that his book would fall in the water, and it did. He foretold the arrival of unexpected visitors, the reign of kings, the sudden appearance of whales in the sea, the future lives of children he met, and the outcome of battle. He could see behind himself. He could proofread the copies of sacred books without looking at them. When he chanted, his voice sounded normal to those next to him, but could be heard a mile away. He knew that an evil man had slept with his own mother. Years before the news arrived, he knew that a town in Italy had been destroyed by a volcano. He knew that a priest was unclean, but didn't say how. He did not ask Cronin the poet to sing, for he knew that same night, the poet was to be murdered by brigands. He knew that Guare, the strongest man in all of Dalriada, would be killed by a close companion. But he didn't tell Guare that the companion was his knife that would slip in an accident. He knew that a wounded heron would land on their island, and he instructed the monks to nurse it back to health when it was found. He stood in the sunshine and knew a storm was coming. He knew that a youth named Coleman Uy Brown had not made the sign of the cross when he milked the cows, and that the devil was hiding at the bottom of his milk pail. He could cure plagues and heal broken bones, and ease the pain of childbirth with a blessing. He could calm strong winds and high waves. With a prayer, he changed the heart of Wigna, the little hammer's wife, who loathed and would not sleep with her husband. Long after his death, in a great drought, his tunic was carried into the fields and shaken three times, bringing rain. His biographer, 
Andamnan of Iona, wrote a century later that, quote, by divine grace he had several times experienced a miraculous enlarging of the grasp of the mind, so that he seemed to look at the whole world caught in one ray of sunlight. As a child, a ball of light was seen hovering over his head as he slept. It's time for our final break. This is Hummingbird, another off of Wilco's A Ghost is Born. More with Elliot Weinberger about angels and saints when Interchange returns. His goal in life was to be an echo Riding alone, town after town, toll after toll to Interchange. In our final segment with essayist and translator Elliot Weinberger, we're treated to a portrait of the essayist as a young boy, and we'll learn the names of some angels I'll mispronounce, one of whom, or is it one of which, cures boils. There are a couple towards the end that sort of tell the story of celebrity in some ways and the way that things are promoted and, and make money. Um, and then there's, of course, the I think it's the final one, uh, Advige Carboni, uh, sainted mm-hmm. in 2018, who basically you know prayed to release Mussolini from purgatory. Yeah, I think with that what happens is uh, as as we get into the 20th century, uh, it seems like the um, the standards for sainthood really uh, go down quite a bit. And uh, you also have many more sort of political saints, particularly uh, anti-communist saints. And uh, the, the last saint in the book is, is uh, Edvige Carboni, who is a, uh, a woman in Italy who starts off by um, having lots of miraculous things happen to her, like uh, Jesus comes over and does the laundry for her, and makes her coffee when she's ill. 
And then she uh, she gets into a sort of uh, political thing. She has the power of, of bilocation. She can be in two places at the same time. And so she goes to visit Stalin in Moscow during the war and tries to convert uh, Stalin to uh, Catholicism. Then she ends up seeing uh, Mussolini. After Mussolini's death, she sees him in purgatory. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB with essayist and translator Elliot Weinberger, whose latest book is Angels and Saints. We've covered some angelic ground, and now we're talking about a few of the saints highlighted in the book, like Ginefort, the saint who was a dog, and Edvige Carbone, who prayed that God would forgive Mussolini and claimed Jesus told her that it was so. There's a section in the in the middle of uh, the well, not in the middle, but near the end of Angels, where you just uh, you write uh, kind of an angelic poem, yeah. It's a collage of, of of all of these different angels and what they're responsible for. So uh, I'm just opening up the book here at, at random. So you have the the angel who determines the death of domestic animals, the angel who returns small birds to their owners, the angel who can cure stupidity, the angel in charge of archives and libraries, the angel who helps fishermen catch large fish. This goes on for some pages of all kinds of aspects of uh, human experience that are and, and natural experience, too. I'm just looking at one, uh, an angel who rules the insects that live on the water. There's basically an angel for everything. from Section 5 of the essay Angels, and offered here in Disorder. Angels hovering all around. Iahel, the angel of philosophers and recluses. Jalula, who carries the cup of oblivion so that a soul can drink and forget all that it has known. Nadiel, the angel of migration. Makdiel, who rules over trees. Nahaliel, who rules the running streams. Kafziel, who governs the death of kings. Makidiel, who can bring a man the maiden of his desire. Amarlia, who cures boils. Asmode, who teaches mathematics and can make men invisible. Nathaniel, who guards hidden things. Babereth, who notarizes pacts made with the devil. Shruniel, who can bestow a good memory. Penemu, who taught mankind the corrupting art of writing. Harbona, the donkey driver, an angel of confusion. Umahel, whose mission is unknown. These angels who do the protecting don't do a great job, usually, either, unfortunately. (laughs) These guardians aren't great. Well, you know, God used to complain about the angels, too, that's actually uh, in the Old Testament, that the the angels weren't doing such a good job of of spreading his his word. There's a belief uh, among the early Christians that, that the angels were so bad at spreading the word of God that God sent down his son in human form, Jesus, to, to spread the word of God because the, the angels were so inept. Mm. All those mi- millions upon millions upon millions of angels failing. 
Exactly. One son will do it. It, it worked, actually. <laughs> yeah, it was, that was a good story. The other thing that happens, of, of course, a lot with saints, and which is proofs of their sainthoods, is the, uh, the miracle that happens around their relics. And, uh, after they're, after they're dead, uh, you know, the, uh, some finger bone or a hand or something, uh, uh, from a saint then causes all of these, uh, all of these miracles. And that's one of the, one of the great proofs of, of sainthood. Unfortunately, there are the situations where, you know, people have their parts taken from them against their will. Well, in a way that's uh, quite uh, terrible, right? I, I forget one of the women, you know, have her has her nipples cut off. Right, right, right. Yeah, and then the uh, the, then the the moving of, uh, of of the relics from one place to another was actually called translation, translatio. So it's one of the uh, the original questions of, of translation. There's a note in here on uh, Thomas Shepard. I remembered the name because I had read um, Susan Howe's The Birthmark. He's all over the birthmark. I mean, he's a big part of that book. And as I was looking at that book and looking at those uh, shepherd parts, I, I saw a quote that she used from Kenneth Burke paraphrasing St. Augustine. Woe to those who keep silent about God, for where he is concerned, even the talkative are as though speechless. Yeah, I've forgotten about this. I have to go back to Susan's book, actually. It's a good one. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. And she actually... Uh, I'm indebted to her for uh, for when I was w- working on the angels. She was reminding me of this uh, old uh, Irish hymn, uh, "Angels Hover All Around." And in fact, I ended up using that line, uh, "Angels Hover All Around," for the introduction of my kind of poem about the angels. And before I let you go, if you don't mind, I did want to ask because you did remark on influences before Nidecker Reznikov uh, in the past, but you also uh, note theater and its double by Artaud, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. How did it influence you? The introduction to the theater and its double uh, is mind blowing because it opens with a uh, with a plague ship uh, sailing into the harbor and everyone on the ship has bubonic plague. It just seemed like such an amazing, uh, you know, imaginative leap uh, at the time uh, that I first read it, and how if you're going to talk about theater, you you begin with this plague ship, and then it it ends with the very famous scene where um, this is also all in the introduction, where it's talking about. Um, not sure if he's. Uh, I don't remember now if he's talking specifically about Joan of Arc or about just one of the martyrs, and that art is about the martyr on the pyre signaling through the flames as they are burned, and and that this is you know this is what art is. To me, this was a uh, you know was a kind of revelatory revelation on how um, how essays could be written. On the other hand, I, I have to say that um, a couple of years ago, I uh, in my parents' house, I, I discovered a box of my old papers, and uh, I found these two papers I had written: one in junior high school when I was twelve, and one in ninth grade when I was thirteen, and. Uh, Back then, you had to do reports, you know, with covers and everything. And uh, the first one was on fallout shelters, which, uh, which was the rage at the time. And the second one was on apartheid in, in South Africa. 
What struck me about them is that they're written in exactly the same style as I write now. I haven't changed at all. Vocabulary is a little better, and the, of course the prose is a little more sophisticated, but they were basically the same. They were kind of collages of information. So when you get to this question of influence, it's always, it's always quite strange because I, it, it turns out that I've always been the same, which was uh, Auden's definition of a minor writer, somebody whose style never changes. So I think, I don't know, I somehow this is what I was doing when I was 12, and then here I am 60 years later doing exactly the same thing. our show. Our closing song is Spiders, Kid Smoke, another from Wilco's A Ghost is Born. And yes, there is a saint associated with spiders, Felix of Nola, a third century Christian presbyter who was arrested and beaten by the Romans for his faith. But he escaped and was hidden in a building made to look vacant by a quick-acting spider that spun a web across the doorway. And this happened more than once. Thanks to Elliot Weinberger for joining us to talk about his new book, Angels and Saints, published by Christine Bergen and New Directions. And again, congratulations to Elliot for winning the Bremerhaven Citizens Prize for Literature. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. <laughs>